Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast with me, Deputy Personal Finance Editor Kate Beatley. Today I'm joined by Personal Finance Writer Emma Adjman and Jason Hollands, Managing Director at Tilney Best Invest. So today we're going to kick off with the big news this week, which is the budget, which brought with it the launch of a brand new lifetime ISA and surprise cuts to capital gains tax. And then we're going to have a value investing special. So Emma has been looking at why everybody's talking about value investing at the moment, which has been a really out of favour investment style. And she's going to have a look at whether we should all be moving into it or not. And I've taken a look at some exchange traded fund indices, which appear to prove her point. But we're going to kick off with the budget and the launch of this new lifetime ISA. So George Osborne had previously been mooting a move to a pensions ISA system to replace the current system of upfront tax relief, which has been quite controversial. And he was kind of forced to row back from that and instead has launched this new lifetime ISA for the under 40s and up the ISA limit to £20,000 from April 2017. So this new ISA enables under 40s to save up to £4,000 a year in cash or stocks and shares and get a £1,000 top up from the government. And that's between the ages of 18 to 50. Now that money can either be used to buy a home of up to £450,000 in a very similar way or the same way as the help to buy ISA or you leave it in there until you're 60 and then you can use it uh, for retirement as kind of a form of pension. But crucially, you can take the money out, unlike a pension, which you would have to leave until you were 55. Though if you take it out, you have this exit fee of 5% and you forego the government bonus. So basically this has flexibility which pensions don't have and you can have that choice between putting the money towards a home or carrying on savings. Jason what do you make of this? Is this George Osborne introducing a pension ISA by stealth? In a nutshell I think yes I mean until a few weeks ago of course most industry watchers absolutely took it for, as a given that the current system of upfront tax relief on pensions, potentially a high rate relief for a high rate taxpayer, would be going because he needs to find the money to balance the books. And it looked a soft target. Then we had that dramatic rowing back just a couple of weeks ago, which uh, sounded too good to be true. And so I think a lot of people were expecting different types of moves against pensions in the budget, which largely haven't happened. But along comes the lifetime ISA, which looks and feels very very much like the type of pension reforms he was talking about implementing. So in other words, he seems to be setting up, if you like, a live experiment for a new type of um, way of saving for retirement, which has an element of upfront contribution, but isn't relief at the investor's marginal tax rate. Because for basic taxpayers, isn't it, the, the 20% upfront tax relief actually works out as the same government bonus 25%. Um, and obviously, the, the government has pitched this as a savings vehicle, you know, this isn't a pension. But ultimately, for people who only have a certain amount of excess income, they will be choosing between paying into a pension product or saving into one of these, ultimately. So who does it benefit, do you think, to opt for one or the other? Sure. I think, look, in broad terms, this looks particularly attractive for young savers. It looks almost a no-brainer. But I think if there are some concerns, there are a couple of things. One is it's more more choice is actually getting quite confusing. We know a lot of people, they, they struggle over deciding, should I do an ISA or should I do a pension? And now they've got uh, this in the mix to consider. And also the other thing, I think there's a potential area of confusion is uh, this chancellor loves slapping the ISA label and all sorts of things. We now have the new ISA 
junior ISA, help to buy ISA, innovative finance ISA, and now, goodness sake, the lifetime ISA. And I think that can be quite confusing. I think really um, with the lifetime ISA, there's another concern is, will this actually essentially compete with the government's flagship auto enrolment initiative, which is encouraging all companies to offer their staff a pension scheme? And I think anyone who's where their employer is paying into a pension on their behalf is still going to be better off with a workplace pension if the employer's putting money in, they're putting money in and they're getting the state top up. So I don't think many people who are really primarily saving for retirement um, should think this is a better deal and opt out. But it will appeal to some people who simply want greater flexibility and it will appeal to people who want to do more than just the workplace pension. So I don't think it should detract from the importance of a workplace pension, but it may appeal to people who've got excess cash to invest. And importantly, I think anyone who's a higher rate taxpayer is still going to be much better off putting money into a pension as a as a retirement vehicle. And that's because the, the relief for higher rate taxpayers is greater. Because currently pension. that traditional system of being able to get relief at your marginal rate of tax, in other words, 40% for a higher rate taxpayer, remains in place for now. I think the one thing that uh, what we'll have to watch very carefully is it was considered that the Chancellor made a tactical retreat on his big full frontal reform of the tax relief system on pensions, largely because he didn't want to rock the boats ahead of the Brexit referendum. And it's quite possible he may return to this potentially in a future budget, even as early as the autumn statement, particularly if he needs to find some more cash to pay down the deficit. But it could be the case, actually, he just runs with this lifetime ISA and after a few years can demonstrate that um, that new type of account has proved very popular. um, And at that point, maybe he'll make his move. Yeah, I mean, because people have been saying, haven't they, that this is, you know, this could undermine the pension system, or we could end up with this two tier system of lifetime ISAs for the under 40s and pensions for over 40s. And I mean, is is there also a concern that actually this could undermine pension saving for younger people, maybe if they're saving in this vehicle instead of using excess income to put into a pension, and then actually they get the deposit for a house or get a bit of a windfall and then use all of that money for a house purchase and are left with no you know no pension saving there has to be a, a key concern around this but equally there are really you know two the two biggest financial decisions you make in in life are the property uh, purchase that you make and getting on the housing ladder and of course how you choose to fund your retirement and this is an account that tries to do both um so, uh, but there has to be a concern that, that the people will plough all their savings um, towards buying a property. But to be honest, that's often the case at the moment anyway. Mm. Um, I know plenty of people who have very good jobs and they've ploughed pretty much all their money into getting a big mortgage in a property and have very little in the way of ISAs or pension investments. So it seemed like quite a quiet budget in terms of uh, actual pension announcements, but there were some that were quite easy to miss, weren't there? What? So there were some little bits and bobs. Obviously, the big blockbuster story never never arrived on the day, which was obviously the full frontal assault on pension tax reliefs. I think, you know, there was a lot of dark brooding ahead of the budget of, well, you know, would he reduce the lifetime allowance again? Would he uh, cut the um, annual pensions allowance again? He didn't. So that was um, pleasing that uh, he didn't make uh, further moves against pension. But there were some small changes. And a couple that I would draw out is one is the Chancellor has announced that in 2019, um, the government aims to set up a pensions dashboard, i.e. a place uh, online where you could go and see the value of all your pension pots in one place. Sounds a fantastic idea and would be highly welcome. As we know, these types of 
big technology projects do tend to drift and go over budget. So I'm personally sceptical as to whether or not uh, that will actually happen in time largely because actually a lot of pension legacy systems are not really very efficient. And I, I just wonder whether or not uh, it will launch on time, but would be very welcome. I think the other one I draw out, and it had been sort of flagged in the media, I think, ahead of the budget, was a new pensions advice allowance where you'll be able to take up to £500 tax-free out of a pension scheme towards the cost of financial advice. That has to be very welcome because too many people particularly when they're coming to retirement, just purchase the annuity that's put to them by their existing pension provider. They don't shop around. They don't get professional advice, perhaps because they're concerned about the costs of advice. But it's such an important decision. That could be money well spent if you can find a better deal that's going to provide you with a better rate of income for the remainder of your life. And one of the other big personal finance changes in this budget was capital gains tax cuts. And Emma, you've been having a look at this. Uh, what, what were those changes? Yes, you're right, Kate. They were quite big changes. Um, so to remind everyone, capital gains tax is, or CGT, is paid when you sell an asset that has gone up in value. And it affects um, a range of investments, including equities, second homes and buy-to-let properties. Um, so the Chancellor in the budget announced quite substantial changes. He cut the CGT rate for higher income taxpayers from 28% to 20%. And for basic income taxpayers, he cut it from 18 to 10%. And this is obviously great news for investors, but it's not so great for second property owners or buy-to-let landlords because of these new rates won't apply to, to property sales. Uh, so, yeah, sad, sad time of buy-to-let landlords who would have been initially thinking that was going to be a great windfall, I guess. Mm-hmm. But Jason, you've actually said this will have a big impact on enterprise investment schemes, haven't you? Yes, that's right. I think, um, I mean, this really was a surprise move and it shows the dangers of making budget predictions because <laughs> one of the things we were saying ahead of the budget, well, now he's not going to go for tax relief on pensions. Where else is he going to find the money? Maybe he'll put CGT rates up to align them with the income tax rate. And of course, he did the complete opposite. Uh, so this is very welcome. And I think um, I think where this could be interesting is if you have a capital gains, t- if you made a capital gain from the sale of a, a, an asset and have a capital gains tax liability, you can defer paying that uh, tax by investing, reinvesting the gain you've made into enterprise investment schemes. You would get a 30% income tax credit on your investment. And then you would only recrystallize that capital gains tax liability when you sell or exit the EIS shares. So it doesn't disappear entirely. But obviously, one of those features is you can uh, delay paying uh, a CGT liability and recrystallize it in an environment perhaps where CGT rates are lower. And that would clearly be the case uh, with these reforms. Importantly, though, uh, with EIS schemes is you can do this for gains made up to 36 months before um, you invest in the EIS shares. So one of the things we would expect to see is people who've made a capital gain over the last three years and have paid tax at the 28% level might now think about, well, uh, actually, I'll, I'll go and invest in some EIS shares, get some upfront tax relief four or five years later when they exit the EIS shares, be able to be liable for the uh, um, capital gains tax bill at the lower 20% rate. So this should 
create some increased demand and interest in EIS schemes. Okay, interesting. And we'll have a bit more coverage of what the budget means for for you and your personal finances and investments next week. But now we're going to turn to this week's big theme written by Emma, which is all about value investing, uh, value versus growth investing. I mean, Emma, what is value investing? What is this style? So value investors focus on buying companies that are out of favour of the market and as a result have low share prices. And they investors, value investors, think that there's a potential gain to be made when these companies return to favour and their share prices rise, um, usually in better economic conditions. Okay, so they're very cheap companies, mm-hmm. usually. They're very cheap companies, and they offer the opportunity for um, people who have a sort of contrarian, bent, um, high-risk um, attitude to to buy whilst they're cheap in the hope that they're going to rise. Okay, so that style's been very much out of favour, hasn't it, for the past few years, past five years? Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually been out of favour for probably since um, the financial crash in 2008. And that's because investors have tended to focus on safety or growth. So they've been piling their money into companies that are not so um, reliant on the strength of the economy and you know have the capacity to have self-sustaining growth. So that tends to be companies in um, healthcare or consumer staples, um, companies like Coca-Cola, Heineken, Johnson Johnson. These are all companies that have done really well. But investors have not really been focused on companies that sort of traditionally value stocks, companies that are more reliant on the strength of the economy. And um, as a result, these companies' share prices have taken um, quite a hit. I mean, commodities and energy prices are just one example of that we've seen recently. Okay, so why are people, well, are people saying it's time to move into value now? And and if they are, why? Yes, I mean, the issue is that the amount of money that investors have been piling into these so-called predictable growth companies, those companies that have self-sustaining growth, has pushed prices up so much that analysts are now feeling that it's become too expensive. These companies are just um, overpriced. And so actually value stocks, those companies um, that have had lower, you know, have had to deal with lower share prices are looking so much cheaper that there could be a a bargain to be had here. So have you had a look at some funds which which operate in this way or invest in this style? Yeah, some of the funds that um, we've been told are interesting funds to consider are Schroeder Recovery Fund, which is managed by Nick Kerouge and Kevin Murphy. It buys companies whose shares have dropped because they've had a setback or struggling in an area of the economy. And its largest holdings include BP, Royal Bank of Scotland and Anglo-American. And there's also Jupiter UK Special Situations, which is managed by Ben Whitmore, and he's considered a classic value investor. He also buys companies that are out of favour and holds them for many years until their value is appreciated by the stock market. And his largest holdings include BP as well. BAE Systems and AstraZeneca. Okay, so I mean, those some of those companies, you know, arguably major headwinds facing them, and maybe a bit scary for some investors. Jason, what what do you think? Is it time to invest in value, or is it still too risky? In the US, actually, we've in our client portfolios that where we manage them, we've moved into sort of more value orientated funds last year. I mean, I think Emma hit the nail on the head when she said that value investing's had a difficult time since the financial crisis. And one of the reasons why growth companies have done well is, of course, we've had unprecedented amounts of liquidity in the financial system through QE and ultra-low interest rates. And that's actually encouraged risk-taking. So uh, it's not just, obviously, the predictable 
growth companies have done well, but also some of the racier sectors like biotech have done phenomenally well in that environment. And that's with people looking for returns, which they can't get from bonds. And Exactly. But I think there's been a change in market sentiment clearly since the latter part of last year. There's a lot more bearishness around. And therefore, a lot of uh, investors are sort of switching into companies that, that just seem to look very good value. I think one of the challenges with value investing is, and that was a great explanation um, at the high level of, of value investing, is actually there are, within the value investing space, different ways of measuring whether a company is cheap. So you can have uh, managers who are essentially deep value managers that will look for companies that really are very bombed out PE values. But there are other value ma- managers who have a style of looking for hidden or intrinsic value. In other words, they feel there's an asset or an attribute of a company that's perhaps not fully reflected in the share price they believe and in time they believe the market will will recognize that okay so you mentioned the us there do you think is that the best part of the world to look for value or or is this a global thing so we've we've been uh, concerned uh, last year that us stock market looked quite expensive the leadership of the us stock market a lot of the uh, uh, returns were actually around a fairly small cluster of growth companies and obviously if you owned an s&p 500 tracker that would essentially um, you'd be essentially chasing those types of stocks so uh, one of the things that we we did was actually moved out of s&p or reduced our exposure to, to s&p 500 traditional trackers and moved into an ETF, the um, PowerShares um, FTSE RAFI 1000 ETF, which owns the thousand largest companies in the US, but instead of weighting them by market cap, it weights them according to fundamental factors like profits, dividends, cash flow, value at PE valuations, and essentially it gives a more value to tilt to it. Okay, so that's one fund that you like. Are there any other value-flavoured funds that you particularly like? Yeah, I think within the within the UK market, Emma mentioned some of the big funds out there, M&G Recovery and, and Schroeder's Recovery are, are large funds that have, have had a very tough time in recent years. But I think uh, a couple of other funds worth flagging would be a much smaller fund is the um, Mighton UK Value Opportunities Fund, managed by George Godbury uh, uh, and Georgina Hamilton, and also the Temple Bar Investment Trust for Investment Trust funds that has a sort of value investment approach japan is one market where i think if you look at the long-term data value as as an investment style has outperformed growth um, more often it hasn't in recent years but a couple of funds we like there would be the man glg japan core alpha fund which focuses on larger companies that the manager believes are undervalued by the market and another fund we like is the cf morant right japan fund that has a value style, but it tends to invest more heavily in mid-caps and smaller companies. So actually, someone wanting to play value in Japan, buying the two could be a good way of getting exposure right across the market. Okay, and you mentioned the PowerShares ETF a little earlier. And in fact, I've had a look at some of the indices tracked by ETFs, because that can be quite a good way of, of looking at value styles and seeing if there is kind of a, a change in sentiment coming and ETF indices are interesting because you really can isolate these different styles. So I have looked at the MSCI World uh, against the MSCI World Growth and MSCI World Value, and then the S&P 500, and then its growth and value counterparts, and then the same for the Russell 1000. And the evidence really does look like 2016 
is a bit of a turn as most of those, the growth indices were outperforming value for the kind of four, five, in some cases, six years that I've looked at. Um, and then in 2016, in all cases, value has suddenly started to pull away. So that looks like quite strong evidence that we might be having kind of a, a style shift and it might be time to get in ahead. Jason, what do you think about the idea generally of using passive vehicles for this kind of investment play? The evidence, particularly for US equities, is it's a market that's notoriously difficult for active fund managers to beat, whether you're buying a, a traditional passive investment or whether you're buying with a, a, a vehicle which has a style tilt to it. Uh, I think the other thing in the US, it's obviously a, um, a very sophisticated uh, market in terms of the range of domestic mutual funds. There, an American uh, private investors are very used to the idea of uh, switching between um, funds that have a strong value or growth style. Uh, we're less used to that in the UK. Uh, managers tend to be a little more pragmatic and sit in the middle. Uh, but it, America has, has long had a history of uh, funds which have a very clear style brief. Okay, thanks. Well, I think that's probably all we've got time for now. So that just remains me to thank Jason and Emma. And for more on the budget and value investing, take a look at this week's magazine and we'll be back next week. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.